0: we all think about the future, but we don't do a very good job. It's all too easy to put off till tomorrow what we know we should be doing today. After all, the future just seems so far away. But of course it will happen. And when it does, we find all too often that we've to get what we want. Hal Hirschfeld has been studying this phenomenon for 15 years. He's a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. His advice is this, look in the mirror, not at the person you are now, but at the one you're going to be. His upcoming book is entitled, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. Hello again, I'm Orman Alney, and this is UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works.
1: Al Hirschfeld, welcome aboard. Hey, thanks, Warren. It's so nice to talk to you.
0: Same here. So what do you mean by future self?
1: Right, right. It's a nice, big, abstract concept to start off any book. Um, Future self is (laughs) in some ways dependent on what our goals are, right? So, you know, if I'm thinking way ahead to my retirement years, I have a a retirement aged future self. But I could also be thinking, you know, okay, five years from now, I want to be a little bit healthier, and I still want to be able to Get down on the ground and wrestle with my kids and now that future self is five years out but you'll notice that along the way there's a bunch of little selves right so to think five years ahead in the health context i've got to also think about whether i'll exercise tomorrow and what i'll be eating and drinking this weekend and all those things add up so there's no one future self there's many along the way and what really matters here is the goals that we've set out for ourselves
0: Well, how do you come about to imagine your future self? Do you try to find it at a given point?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that would be my recommendation. I think these sorts of conversations about who will be in the future work a lot better, the more specific that we can get. You know, if I'm thinking about my career in 10 years, let's start there. Let's start with who will I be? What will I be doing? How will I spend my time in 10 years, you know, specifically? Right. If I'm thinking about my summer vacation budget for the summer of 2024, let's think ahead to then. But specificity here, I think matters.
0: So why do you do it? Why do you ask people, suggest to people that they imagine their future selves?
1: I do it not because of any sort of value-laden judgment. It's not like I'm going around saying, you know, you should be thinking more about your future self, or you should be doing this. I am, a behavioral scientist. So I'm fundamentally interested in times when people say that they want to do something but they just keep failing to do it. You know, so if somebody says, "I want to save money and I'm just not doing it." "I want to eat healthy and stop snacking late at night, but I can't do it." Those are the times when the conversations with future selves start to really be important because that's when we can try to bridge the gap a bit between the wants, and the you know the reality of life.
0: So clearly the future self doesn't exist. It's an analogy or a metaphor, but you're suggesting you can actually have a conversation with it.
1: That's right. I mean, you're spot on there. In my research and my thinking, I, I like to consider the future self another person. In fact, that's how people see it. The really important thing to note here is that it's not an actual other person. It doesn't yet exist. And in some ways it never does, right? Because we're, kind of always turning into it, becoming our present selves. And yet, the idea of having a conversation with that self, I don't think is so crazy, right? Anecdotally, lots of people say that they talk to deceased loved ones. It's almost like that continual conversation, thinking about what somebody would say or feel or do and let me check in with them. I don't think it's that far off to think about the same sort of conversations that we might have with our own future selves.
0: So before we talk about the goals involved, let's talk a bit about the science because uh, you have done research with uh, MRI studies and others as well to determine that when people think about their future selves, they think about them the same way they think about strangers.
1: That's right. So I think most interesting research findings from the social neuroscience world is that the brain can tell what's me and what's not me. You know, it makes sense in some ways you know, me or the self, it's this bundle of things, emotions, memories, uh, preferences, tastes, ideals, etc. So it would make sense that thinking about me right now would cause one pattern of activity in the brain compared to say, thinking about, about you or anybody else. I took that distinction there and asked along with my colleagues, whether or not you might see the same sort of separation when people think about themselves now and themselves in the future. And so we did just this. We put people into a scanner, an MRI scanner. We used fMRIs, that's functional MRI where you're watching blood flow in the brain as people are making thoughts. And we had them make judgments about themselves now and themselves in the future and another person now and another person in the future. And you know, what we found on average was that the activity in the brain that came about from thinking about another person was more similar to the activity that came about when we think about our future selves. So, you know, if I can make that really simple, in the brain, our future selves look like other people.
0: You, in fact, have done studies where you altered people's pictures so that when they looked at their pictures of themselves as older people, they got quite a shock, as I understand it. Describe that process.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the impetus here was to try to get people to connect more to their future selves. And one way to do that is to make it more vivid, more realistic and visual. And what we did is we used age progression technology. It does to the face what aging does, right? So it sags your cheeks and adds some wrinkles and age spots and put people into these settings where they would be confronted by their future selves. So we've done it in virtual reality. We've done it online. I've done it recently with a a large bank, across the board when people are exposed to these images of their future selves, they're more likely to want to make a contribution and actually do make a contribution uh, to a long-term savings account. I need to be careful here because these are not massive effects. This is a really tricky behavior to change. What I mean by that is trying to get people to save more for the future. There's lots of things that go into that decision.
0: We'll talk a little bit more about the reason for having a conversation with this other self, which becomes, it seems to me, more real. when you talk about the, the brain perceiving it in a different way than it perceives your own self, what are you hoping to accomplish? Obviously, you're not doing a book saying, here's how to get a long term savings account.
1: That you're, you're absolutely right about that, right? That's just one piece of the puzzle. What I'm interested in are any context in which there are trade-offs between now and later. So psychologists call these intertemporal decisions, which is really a fancy term for saying any choice or any decision we have where there is a consequence now when I make the choice and also a consequence later. So saving and spending is the classic example, but so is eating and exercising and ethical decisions and even the way that we spend our time, right? So anytime that I say I gotta get these urgent things done and I fail to attend to the important ones, that's a case where I'm doing more for the present than I am for the future. And the danger arises in any of these scenarios, whether it's financial or health or dietary or ethics or whatever, in any of these scenarios, the danger arises when the future comes and I look back and say, ah, I wish I had acted differently.
0: Do people focus, do you think, too much on the present and simply not pay enough attention thinking about the future? You know, I think
1: the phrase too much is an important one to unpack there because part of the reason that we don't do enough for the future is because we get anchored on the present. This is one of the concepts that I really dig into in the book. It's worth noting that it may make sense to focus on the present, right? That's the period of time that we live in. There are often things that demand our attention right now. The problem arises when we get anchored to an excessive degree on the present, when we attend, quote-unquote, as you said, too much to the present, so much so that we end up ignoring the interests of our future selves.
0: One of the terms that you uh, talk about at great length is procrastination. Procrastination
1: is one of my favorite topics to study, in part because I feel like it's so relatable, everybody does this. Procrastination is an example of something a little different than being overly anchored on the present. Procrastination occurs when we think ahead to the future. It's not like we don't know it's coming. We do think ahead, but we don't do so in all that deep of a way, it's almost surface level. I tell myself, next week is the week that I'm finally gonna set up my whatever account. Next week is the week that I'm finally gonna get rid of that stack of papers and whatnot that's piling up on the dining room table. I'm thinking ahead, I'm telling myself I'll do it then. But if I were to do it in a deep way, I'd realize that next week is gonna be no different than this week. And if I haven't had the energy or inclination or motivation to finally go through that stack of papers this week, I'm probably not next week, right? So then what can I do about that? I love this topic though, because it's another case where we end up really making life difficult for our future selves, because the longer we take to do something, the worse the outcome is gonna be.
0: So what are some of the obstacles to uh, actually thinking deeply about the future?
1: Well, one is that the present is this powerful pull on our emotion. Another is that the present is just that much more certain than the future. That everything that happens in the future is uncertain. There's always some uncertainty about anything that hasn't happened yet. And the future is abstract. We don't really think all that carefully about the emotions that we'll feel then, so much so that they somehow feel as if they won't be as strong as the emotions we experience right now. And you can see how that can lead us astray, right? If I think that the feelings I'll have in a year will somehow be more muted than the feelings I'm having right now, it makes sense. You could forgive ourselves for wanting to do whatever happens right now. That just seems like a much more emotional thing to do.
0: You point out that the future is gonna be very different from the present or is likely to be different from the present. Is there a tendency for people to project when they're thinking about the future, project their current situation into the future as if it's going to be the same?
1: Yeah, this is this is another one of these mistakes that we make when it comes to sort of thinking about the future. So just to make sure it's clear, you know, one mistake is that I get overly anchored on the present. Another one is that I think ahead to the future, but I don't do so in a deep way. And then there's this third, and I think it's a really pernicious mistake where I convince myself I'm thinking ahead, but in doing so, I use my present day feelings and thoughts and preferences and unfairly project them ahead onto my future self. So, you know, the classic example is going to the grocery store and I'm hungry and I shop for the week in a hungry state and then I get home and I've got a whole bunch of stuff that I don't really need, you know, or the flip side, right? I I go to the grocery store right after dinner and I come home and that week goes by and I'm like, where are my snacks? You know, I could have really used some. Those are examples where I am planning. I am thinking ahead, but it's almost too rigid because I'm failing to appreciate just how my preferences and my feelings will change and alter over time. So it's another instance where we screw over our future selves.
0: So what about sacrifice? Sometimes it is called for, it seems to me, when you're trying to plan ahead. And it would seem to me it makes it much more difficult to make important decisions if sacrifices are involved.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to point out that whenever you have these quote unquote trade-offs, trade-offs between now and later, it's always you right now who has to make the sacrifice, spend less, eat healthier, save more, et cetera, and you in the future who gets the benefit, there's this great line from Groucho Marx where he says, you know, what have future generations ever done for us? You know I love that because it's basically saying like, our future selves, they don't do anything for us right now, right? And so the gist here is that it can be really hard to do these things that make life better in the future because the pain is experienced right now.
0: You can see this on a much broader scale, too, because people think about global warming and having to generate fewer emissions. Uh, and people say, what have my grandchildren and great-grandchildren ever done for me?
1: Exactly. You know, I think about this all the time. About young kids think, okay, what, what sort of things am I doing right now that will impact the environment for them later? And, you know, the city we live in, Santa Monica, made, you know, composting mandatory. And I was grumbling about it because I was saying, it's going to be that much more work to literally put some orange peels into a little bin in my kitchen and then move them outside rather than just dump them in the trash. And I realized in that moment, here's a great case. I mean, does it really matter that much? And yet, you know, if everybody does this, that's going to have an impact, right? That's going to have some environmental impact now and later. You know, I sort of use the research I've been doing and the thinking I've been having over the years to say, wait, sure, this is a sacrifice right now. But... Maybe I can actually get some pleasure out of knowing that I'm doing this to hopefully make things better for my kids. That has totally changed the nature of my approach to this one specific behavior.
0: And it's a way of getting away from selfishness, which it seems to me is uh, contradictory to where you're going.
1: Absolutely, right? And I mean, that's the thing. Nobody would say, I'm so selfish. I just wanna live for today. It's just a little bit too hard to do that thing now that's gonna impact me later and future generations later. And that ends up looking selfish.
0: You mentioned earlier that you were talking to a bank. Tell us what you were talking about and how this applies in a business world.
1: Right. So in this particular case, we worked with a bank to reach out to their customers, which was 50,000 customers. Half of them got your standard message that it's important to save for the future. It's important to make a contribution to your retirement account and so on. The other half got those same messages, but the opportunity to see a aged selfie. This is again, going back to the age progression techniques. When the bank customers saw the aged images, they were 16% more likely to make a contribution to their, this is called a personal pension. It's basically like a 401k, a retirement account. I should be careful here to note that it's small numbers, right, any one email blast that goes out to a group of customers is not gonna result in massive changes The bigger point here is taken together. That sort of technique really seemed to work. I just saw another one, a bank in Europe, and this isn't one that I talked to. They put out a simple question to their customers and they said, upload a picture of yourself and they said, write in a sentence, what your ideal retirement would look like. So this one woman writes, I'll be running through a field of poppies with my three dogs now, 10 years ago, what would have happened? I don't know that that would have stopped there. Well, now. The bank uses a toolkit of AI packages, of AI software, and instantly puts together a picture of this woman looking about 30 years older, running through a beautiful field of poppies. And there's one golden retriever in front of her, and there's two behind her. And if you could ever describe a look as being happy, this would be it. I know you can't see it right now, but in my mind's eye, it's the happiest expression I've ever seen. And what I love about this is it's using these same ideas, right? making that future self more vivid, more visual, more emotional, the thinking is that that's going to help people get more interested in retirement, in saving. Now, that particular bank reports that since doing this, they've seen a 300% increase in interest in their retirement products from Q1 2022 to Q1 2023. Now, of course, I don't know what the comparison is there. like, And I don't know if other banks saw a similar increase in interest. The social scientist in me wants to do the clean experiment, right? But that's at least telling that something's happening there, which I think is just such a cool example of this sort of intervention.
0: This is pretty powerful stuff. And particularly now that we have technology where you can alter somebody's image, is it subject potentially to abuse?
1: I mean, any marketing insight is subject to abuse, right? I mean, that's the mindset that I live in, right? So, you know, let's go back to basic behavioral economics and choice architecture. Any of the insights that can lead firms to nudge consumers to doing the quote unquote, right thing as in the thing that they say that they want to do, can also be used to nudge them to do the wrong thing, right? So I mean, who hasn't tried to buy airline tickets, and the next screen says, you know, do you want to upgrade to, to business class, and that box is already checked for you? Well, that is using the power of defaults for I would say, a more nefarious purpose. So of course, you know, could there be a use case for these sorts of interventions, the age progression ones, the future self-interventions that are less than optimal for consumers? Absolutely. You know, that's a business problem and I think it's an ethics problem and it's a problem that smart marketers will then try to figure out how do we combat, how do we talk to consumers about this?
0: So back to the issue of uh, how to make tomorrow better today, what are some of the strategies that you can use to uh, make it easier to do this?
1: Right. So, you know, these are the topics that I really get into in depth in the book. Let me just give a couple. Right. So I like to think about this in terms of three buckets. One bucket is what are the things we can do to draw the future self in closer on an emotional level to who we are now? We've already talked about some of those ideas there. But another bucket is what are the things I can do to help me stay on course? recognizing that when push comes to shove, it's gonna be easy for me to fall prey to temptation. So what sort of commitment devices can I interject into my life so that I don't end up doing the very things I said I wouldn't do, right? And I spotlight some, so for instance, I love this product called a K-safe, which allows you to lock things up in the kitchen using a digital timer that ranges anywhere from one minute to 10 days. It was originally called a kitchen safe with the idea that people could put in their snacks and their candies and whatnot. The founder found that users were using it for all sorts of things, drugs, phones, alcohol, etc. So he switched from kitchen safe to case safe. I use it not every night, but a lot of nights I put my cell phone in there during dinner and it's made a huge difference. I'm not tempted at all to, to check whatever most likely meaningless notification I've gotten from Twitter on there and just be present with my family. Now, the third bucket I talk about is trying to figure out how to make present day sacrifices feel easier to undertake. So I spotlight a lot of techniques there as well. You know, one, for instance, how can we, quote unquote, make the big small? How can I break bigger goals down into smaller, chunkable, more easy to perceive goals? And I talk a little bit there about when that works and when it backfires and you know when it makes sense for us to implement into our own lives. Elaborate. So when I talk about breaking things down, one of the examples that I give is, let's get people to save for the future. I can ask you in monthly terms, 150 bucks a month, or I can ask you in daily terms, five bucks a day. My collaborators and I here at Anderson did just that question. We put that out there for users of a FinTech app, and we found a four, X increase when people are asked about the daily terms rather than the monthly ones. That's amazing in part because it's really simple, but part of what's happening there is we're making the present sacrifice feel easier. Most people can think of something that they would be willing to part with for $5 a day, $150 a month doesn't make as much sense. So this sort of thinking I think works really well when we're trying to accumulate money or when we're trying to exercise more. If I say rather than taking a 30 minute run, What if I go for five minutes and then what if I go for another five minutes and another five minutes, that feels a lot easier to undertake. And I know, I know that's just psychological. No one's telling me that, oh, suddenly I'm surprised I'm going five minutes more, but it's just a mindset shift. Now where this becomes problematic is if I use the same thinking to justify spending, right? So there's a whole industry now, right on buy now, pay later. The buy now, pay later option is letting consumers take a big purchase and break it down into little parts. So it's not that I just spent $1,000 on a new TV that's going to hit my credit card bill next month. No, no, no. I can break that out into payments of $36 a month. Well, that may be a great thing for one big purchase that I have convinced myself I need. Because those small payments feel easier to make, the problem arises when I do that for every big purchase and now i'm left in a worse off situation because every month i'm going to add all those up and it's pretty easy to see how i'm going to go into debt right away
0: one of the examples you use is uh, somebody who decides that he wants to go get one shirt which is available at a, a particular price he goes in and all of a sudden the salesman is showing him suits this
1: of course was me <laughs> and so i went in to try to buy some shirts this is ages ago i had a groupon to buy i think it was two shirts And I got there and the salesman said, I I know you're here for the shirts, but let's take a look at the suits. And you know, this was a nice shop and the suits were several hundred dollars on the quote unquote low end up to, I think it was like $18,000 on the high end. My two shirts were gonna be $90 with this Groupon, right? But I said, what is a suit that's the same price as a small car, what does that look like? And he takes me over and it's this, it's it's a very nice looking suit and it's pinstripes. And he said, take a look at it. Those pinstripes are hand sewn and they can be monogrammed. So if you want, it can just say Hal, 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 Hal <laughs> over and over. And he said, the thread is dipped in liquid gold. Warren, you probably figured out I didn't buy the suit, but now I had a much different number in mind, $18,000. That's a big number. It's easy to get anchored on that. So the idea that I could spend a little bit more and buy a third shirt or even a fourth shirt didn't seem like that big of a deal because at least I wasn't spending all that <laughs> all that money on a suit. And so what happened there is I got anchored on the higher number, found myself then suddenly spending more than I had intended to because I wasn't really thinking about what my wishes were going in. It's easy to see how this sort of thing happens in our daily lives when it comes to spending, when I've told myself I'm not going to spend that much. I've told myself I'm going to save. We get focused on something else and suddenly we're left in a worse off situation.
0: So obviously, we're stuck with these kinds of choices all the time. Back to the uh, issue of the K-safe strategy. If you're doing it with candy, let us say, and you put the candy away, and uh, then all of a sudden, it comes time to be unlocked, are you likely to uh, eat, you know, much, much more candy than you ever would possibly would have before? Because it's been a long time since you've had any.
1: Right. So this is where... Commitment devices are powerful, but problematic, right? So the whole idea of commitment devices is that I'm then putting some sort of boundaries on my future behavior. But you can see how, for one, it might be hard to adopt. Maybe i have say, I don't want to lock away my candy because what if I want it later and I don't take advantage of it? And then you bring up another really difficult problem, which is now I've almost allowed myself to eat more because I can say, you know what? I didn't eat it last night. <laughs> Let's eat double tonight, right? So I think the smart way of thinking about any of these strategies, whether they're bringing the future self closer, whether they're trying to stay on course and use commitment devices, or whether they're trying to make the present sacrifices feel easier, the smart way to think about them is that it may make sense to consider these as items on a menu where we're using them in conjunction with one another. Right. So If I'm only using commitment devices, I'm not sure that's going to be a recipe for success. It may get us part of the way there, but not all the way. If I lock away my candy and then the safe opens up tomorrow night and I'm there sitting looking at this pile of candy, well, that may be a moment for me to really invoke that conversation with my future self and consider how will I feel tomorrow morning? How will I feel in a couple of weeks if I keep engaging in this sort of behavior? And that conversation may help me to say, all right, maybe I shouldn't eat all of it right now. I can also go back a step and say, maybe the thing to do is ration it so that what's in there is an amount that I would want to eat, right? And that's all that I have in my house. This requires a lot of self-control to begin with, right? Which is why I was saying earlier that commitment devices can be powerful, but they're hard to adopt.
0: Is it important for people, do you think, to imagine the negative consequences of things that they might be doing? And are some people better at it than others?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are, you know, what psychologists refer to as individual differences between people. And one thing we do know is that people differ on how much they consider the consequences of present day actions in the future. We also know from my own research that people differ on how well they relate to and connect with their future selves. And at the core of this may be, and I say maybe because we haven't yet done this research, but at the core of this may be an ability to empathize with others. Some people have more of an ability to step into the shoes and see the world through the eyes of others, and other people have a more diminished ability there. But you can see how that exact skill will matter when it comes to trying to see the world through my future self's eyes.
0: You're a professor at the Anderson School of Management. There are a lot of people there doing a lot of different things. What's the reaction to this from your colleagues, and do you find that they have ways of applying the kinds of analysis that you have given us in various different contexts?
1: Well, all of them ask me either not to age their faces or definitely to do it. So that's one thing, but, (laughs) but more seriously, the reaction in some ways is to consider this work, you know, as a part of the bigger picture of trying to understand how we can help consumers and firms. So, you know, one of the things that I really love about the colleagues I have here in the groups that I sit in is that there's often a focus on what, what I would call win-wins that is how can we engage in research that not only helps consumers, but also helps firms with their bottom line. You could even call it a win-win-win because if it's something interesting, that's really fascinating from the research side as well. And so this sort of work is one example of that. And I've, of course, have other colleagues, you know, that represents other examples of that. But, you know, if I can get you to save more, that's going to be more money for the firm. If I can get you to work with a company that helps you eat healthier, well, that'll be good for their bottom line, and it'd also be good for your waistline, right? So these sort of questions that I've been asking and the topics I've been studying really aim to try to hit both the consumer and the firm in a positive way.
0: So your colleagues at the Anderson School are doing a lot of different kinds of research, and you've done various kinds of experiments with them. Tell us a bit about them. Part of
1: what gets me excited in research is, I would say, using a combination of methods. You know, rather than just using, say, surveys or just using experiments, I like to use different methodologies, you know, archival data sets where we're looking into what people have done over time and virtual reality and artificial intelligence and eye tracking and any of these sorts of tools. I really like taking an interdisciplinary approach because it allows you to answer the same question from different viewpoints, which can really help kind of converge on an answer. I, I would say one thing that's difficult there is that you know, no one person can be an expert in all different methodologies. And so I really love collaborating with co-authors who are experts in different techniques because that ends up pushing my own sort of expertise and my own abilities even further.
0: Can you give us examples?
1: For instance, we talked a little bit about using neuroimaging. I can't do that on my own. And over the years, I've done various studies employing neuroimaging technologies in collaboration with other professors who are expert in that topic. Or, you know, I've done work using analytical techniques that involve natural language processing, where we're trying to look at big corpuses of of language and try to detect patterns of speech there. That's not something I'm an expert in, but I can talk about the questions that may be interesting to ask using those techniques and there, I collaborate with people who are bona fide experts there.
0: Well, it is fascinating to uh, talk with you. And once again, let me remind our listeners that uh, the book is called Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. And we've been talking with Hal Hirschfield, the author of it. It is so sophisticated and so interestingly based in science as well that it is a great read. And thanks a lot for talking with us. Hey,
1: thanks, Warren. I really appreciate it.
0: Once again, this has been UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works. I'm Warren Alney. Thanks for listening and join us again.